Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was as awful as it seems. I'm Chris Skull. I'm Ellis James. And I'm Tom Crane. And each week on this show we'll be looking at a brand new historical subject. And today we're going to be discussing jobs. From singing the news to waking people up in the post-industrial age to the clackers who were paid to applaud in 19th century France. Your emails have once again been coming in and one day time machine. Do you know what? Let's just fire it up. It's the one day time machine. 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 So our first email this week on uh, one day time machine, which is just to reiterate, you have a time machine. You can go back to any point in history for one day. What do you do? How do you enjoy yourself? Tell us about it. So Matt Maloney has contacted us to say, hi, fellas, loving the pod. I want to offer an expansion on the one day time machine. When I find myself in long car journeys with people, I often ask them to name a time they wish they could go back to for a day and a time they could go back to to live in for a year. I generally get mixed levels of enthusiasm for answering these, but I feel this is a space for such questioning. I don't know why that feels like a sort of attack on our format point. <laughs> no, I like that because he, he implies that with us, he's found his people. Is this an attempt to gain ownership of the IP should it progress anywhere? <laughs> it, uh, it feels like a bit of a broadside, doesn't it? Um, it's an interesting lens, that, a difference between a day in the past or a year, because I think that would change things a lot for me. A year, you know, I think it's quite cool seeing medieval London for a day, but to live there... A nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The smell, the threat of tuberculosis and a million other diseases. So Matt Maloney does not want to go back to stinky London. He wants to go back to ancient Egypt for a day when the Great Pyramids were being constructed, or Florence during the Renaissance, to live for a year. And he's, he's added here, when you leave the time machine, you know the language of your location, which is quite an important point, actually. That. Yeah, big one. That's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> I've just taken that as a given. So thank you. Yes. For <laughs> I assume wherever I go, I can talk to people. Chris, when you involve yourself with time travel, you never take anything as a given. <laughs> Nothing should be ever. You, you should check, read the small print before you get in the machine, please. Like the Terminator method of of time travel is obviously he turns up wherever he is yeah. naked, and so the first thing he does at Terminator Two, he has to rob yes. someone of their clothes and their motorcycle. Yeah, a similar sized person as well. Some of the quite odd proportions. Uh, difficult for Arnold Schwarzenegger, I would say, because he's probably the world's most famous bodybuilder. <laughs> So you'd have to hope, you know, on the off chance he run, runs into you, Ellis. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and he can go, wait a second. I, personally, if I was the Terminator, I would steal the, the, the jeans but not the pants. You've got okay, to give the guy some dignity. <laughs> he was quite fortunate in that to be time-travelled back to outside like a motorcycle bar full of essentially hell's angels who yeah, not yeah. only had his size but also looked quite cool. If it had gone back to like the World Beach Volleyball Championships. Yeah. Or a leisure centre. Just some bloke trying to play squash in his lunch break. I'll be back with a pair of pants for your modesty, should be the, uh, the quote from Terminator 2. Um, my concern here, Matt has said he wants to go back to ancient Egypt when they were constructing the pyramids. I actually think watching the pyramids, pyramids being constructed would be a little bit bleak. Yeah. The, the finished product undeniably amazing okay i'm not criticizing well, you the... could go on the last day oh yeah okay, we're, doing, we're, we're, we're doing the top bit tonight three to one heave and there we go right to the pub in in my opinion that calls for a half day <laughs> so that's where matt's going um to ancient egypt sarah has got in contact with i like this one it's not quite as um deep 
a jump into history. Hi, lads. I would like to travel back in time to see XTC play. More specifically, I want to travel to the pub in Oxford 1978 where my husband saw them early in their career and can't remember a bloody thing about it. I would quantum leap into the barmaid and throw him out for not paying attention. Love the show, Sarah. That is great, and that is my kind of email, Sarah. (laughs) That's an interesting question. If you could go back to any gig ever... In your one-day time machine, what are you going to? Oh, that is a good question. Hendrix at Woodstock? The problem with Woodstock is the toilets. <laughs> yeah, Woodstock. You're only there for a day, so you just need to not use the toilet for a day. So what's all important is that you watch what you eat the day before you get in the time machine. Yeah. So yeah. don't have a curry, like particularly anything tickly spicy or heavy. Just be aware of what you're taking in before. Eat some nice binding food <laughs> for Imagine. a day. Time travelling back to Woodstock the day before you had a curry, so your main concern is looking for a toilet. Some of the most iconic musical performances of all time. And you're like, sorry, is that one being used? Sorry, is that one being... Oh, my God. Where's that one being used? So, if you have any ideas, do email the show or leave a five-star review. As part of your review, suggest subjects you'd like us to talk about. You can get in contact with the show via any of these means. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ohwhatatimepod. Now, clear off. So this week on the show, I'm going to be talking about the unusual job of the knocker-upper. And I'll be talking about the people who were paid to applaud or boo in 19th century France. And the job I'm going to talk about is the broadside balladeer, which is something I've never heard of uh, prior to researching this podcast. We've all done it and we've fallen down a rabbit hole online. So you might look at a YouTube video and then that triggers a thought and then obviously it will send up, it will offer you similar YouTube videos and next thing you know, it's half past one in the morning, your son's walking up twice, and you think to yourself, this is not a way to live. <laughs> yeah. And I think people think that this is a very, very modern thing. I suppose the 1990s equivalent would have been scrolling through the channels, but you had far less choice. You know, it still feels like a very sort of 21st century kind of entertainment, quite a postmodern entertainment. That's not entirely true. I mean, centuries past. These sorts of snippets of news and information came from sources like the town crier or the Roman uh, preco, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that properly, performed official stories and announcements for public consumption. Now, if they're any good, these people will attract an audience. They might be singing their own songs or covering someone else's. They might even have some wares to flog you, you know, like a CD maybe or a sort of a link to download tracks on a website. Now, their <laughs> ancestor... The sort of the sort of street performer's ancestor was the broadside balladeer. Now, the idea of a balladeer is easy enough to understand, but broadside was a word I wasn't familiar with. Uh, the broadside was a single sheet of paper that had quite literally broad sides. Ah. Now it was pr- and on it was printed songs and stories which could be sold by artists on street corners, and these were designed to be as cheap as possible. So it was a form of consumerism that uh, targeted, but also crucially informed, ordinary people. Can, can I be thick? What's a balladeer? Just someone who sings songs about news and stuff. So people, they, these people would be singing the songs, which had a topical quality, but they were also selling the, the sheet music or whatever it would yeah. have been for it. Imagine on BBC News 24, Clive Myrie singing you the news. <laughs> <laughs> which, incidentally, I would love. 
Yeah. And would be absolutely how I would sort of take in my news content from this point onwards. So what they did, the Broadside Balladia basically sang all of the news that was fit to sing. Yeah. So their ballads could be about almost any subject. So they might tell a story about a historical figure or an event like Dick Whittington, perhaps, or a coronation. They might deliver a politically inflected lyric or story when usually in line with the printer's instincts or the balladier's own. Or they might treat more mundane things such as love or sport or even the queue at the coach station to a ballad. Wow. Now, a popular theme, especially in the 19th century, was sport. The audiences of football matches were really substantial. Not everyone, obviously, could be present. So I either read the account in the newspaper or you could hear the account being performed by a balladeer. So it was like a sort of 1880s match of the day. Um, what solace do you think that is, by the way, when you've, you've missed out on tickets for the cup final? You're going, but at least yeah, yeah. I get to go and hear someone sing about it in the high street tomorrow. Sing, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get the results sung to me. Now, this is from the north of England, right, in, around the 1880s. The, Dews, the Dewsbury men forced Halifax back in spite of splendid play. The Halifax forward dribbled immense and their feet were busy that day. Then Scarborough made a splendid run and again they dribbled the ball and Chambers succeeded in getting a try but Dodd missed kicking the goal. <laughs> At which point, if I was in the audience, my hand would go up and go, okay, that's all well and good, but just what was the score? What's the score? <laughs> I just want to know, just, was it a draw? You haven't given me any of the actual information. And I'm just looking I'm just looking at my fantasy league. Does Chambers get an assist? <laughs> and I triple captain Dodd. <laughs> Please tell me there's a second verse that covers all this. <laughs> this one comes from Scotland around the same time. A football match last Saturday I went to see. To have some fun was exactly what I meant, you see. So off I goes like a sporting man so dutiful to see this game which I reckoned would be beautiful. <laughs> Once again, no idea as to what the score is. <laughs> we have some content around the game here, mate. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a weird way of delivering news, isn't it? Because you've almost got to fix, you've got to fix the tune in place, I would say. And then if it's a big news, that if you've got a crowd, yep. you're having to make a lot of editorial decisions as well as being able to see yeah. it. Like, just think, like, just take the Titanic. Thousands dead. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. What? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my what God. Me- what melody do you choose for <laughs> what that? What melody did Or like... the death of a monarch or something. Yeah, because there's very, very rarely do you get really happy news stories, especially kind of but way like 1500 to 1900. You're not getting, I mean, maybe the odd birth of a prince. But mainly it's going to be miserable stuff. I would suppose sort of naval victories, that kind of thing. Oh, OK, yeah. We've won! We've won! <laughs> <laughs> also, were there, were there like bulletins? Were you like, OK, the 6pm bulletins, I've got to get down to the village square, everyone would go down and sit there. What, what is it What is it like? Is this throughout the day or is he doing like lunchtime, 6pm and 10pm and then bed? I'll, do you know what? I'll make this gruel after the news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> also, were there sort of like Guardian long read ones? Well, they just go on for ages, really long thought pieces. Thought pieces, rather. They're like red tops, yeah. which is more celebrity yeah, yeah. news. The, 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 the Daily Sport, which you just can't believe. <laughs> I've stuck a packet of quavers up my knob, says man. Did, did that guy just sing that an alien turned his kid into a fish finger? This is... We need, we need, to, we need to stand next to a different balladeer. No, that's the one you're going to. Surely, that's like, <laughs> nowhere you're going for sort of like a long piece about the economy. Like, you know, like twenty-four hour news channels now are just get ever ever more kind of entertainment based and shock based, like Fox News. And you think that's how it worked for balladeers? They're like you would just they would realise well, I can get draw a bigger crowd, but just more sensationalist stuff. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? And to be honest, it doesn't sound like any of them have been to any of these football matches either. 
the ones you, those songs from earlier. It doesn't sound like any of them have been to them. Never seen a football match. <laughs> Never. I'm not entirely sure which yeah. one it is. Yeah, because all the detail is about the experience of the match day, as opposed to the, the what's happening on the pitch. I walked well, in through the turnstiles I mean, and up I mean, the stairs. I'm, I mean, I hate to say it, Chris. Have you read my Guardian pieces? <laughs> <laughs> very, very little analysis. It's all vibe. Oh, dear. The one good use of a town crier in history that I'm aware of is the death of Ian Curtis from Joy Division. When uh, and Tony Wilson got a town crier to announce it. No way. Yeah. that's recreated in 24-Hour uh, Party People, and I'm sure I've read it. Just that, that's, I felt... It's, bang on that is a great way of announcing a, a terrible tragedy and felt very on brand wow on the day that you sadly passed chris do you want me to organize that for you well chris it is absolutely guaranteed that should you die before me that is going to happen guaranteed <laughs> I've, I, I, League of Gentlemen style, I've always wanted a floral bouquet that just just spells out the word bastard. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to be talking to you about the clacker. Now, anyone who's ever performed on stage, and you two both have, has faced the prospect of a heckler. Yeah, with time. a plum. Big time. Someone who has a cough at an inopportune moment, who claps between movements of a symphony, boos at the end, or just shouts out nonsense heart where you're trying to get your job done. Good luck if you try that with Ellis and I, though. I will destroy you. <laughs> I will end you, and I will embarrass you in front of your wife and friends. I will find the one thing that you are most insecure about, and I will root it out. <laughs> And then with a sniper's accuracy, I will dismantle your personality and rebuild it in my own image. <laughs> and then I'll bring on the first act. Having caused a horrible atmosphere. Afterwards, I will find you and I will say, I'm so sorry, I did miss Jackie. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean that. And then I'll leave. I'll have one eye over my shoulder because I'm terrified. <laughs> I once got heckled at a, cl- a comedy club that... Tom definitely did. I think I might have done it with Tom, actually. Uh, the Havana Club in oh, yeah. um, Exeter, which is a great mm-hmm. combination of uh, chili con carne and comedy all for a tenner, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Chili con comedy, as I called it. <laughs> <laughs> which is what they should have gone with on the poster. <laughs> Rather than Havana Comedy Club. Anyway, I got, I got, I got heckled uh, a little bit. and A little bit. Let's just say boys will be boys, and I absolutely neutralised my opponent. <laughs> now, he was, he was quite pissed off with me, uh, to the extent that he, that, he, that he followed me into the car park, right? No. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he wanted to have a scrap, and I thought, oh, my God. Now, happily for me, uh, whilst Tom Crane may or may not have been on the bill, I can't remember. We definitely did that gig together. I can't remember if it was that night. The person who was on the bill was a Canadian prop act called uh, Rex Boyd. Oh, yeah. Who, his big closer was he used to juggle with machetes. Mm-hmm. So I said, Jesus Christ, that sort of, that, that bloke in the grey coat is, he's coming after me in the car park, Rex. And Rex said, don't worry about it, I've got these. <laughs> he pulled his machetes <laughs> out, brought me back to my car. <laughs> 
Oh, that's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I once, uh, I think I've told you about this, Ellis, did a corporate that went so badly I got hit on the head with a volivon. Yes, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, that was a low one. What a friend. Thrown from the back. <laughs> Thrown at you. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, stop doing that. You're wasting your food, as a joke. And he said, it's a buffet. There's plenty where that came from. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh, oh my God. God. Isn't that Brian Connolly's catchphrase? <laughs> it's a buffet. <laughs> Pop culture Ellis, reference for the kids. Ellis, question: Did I win them round after that? No. Did you win them round after that? No, no absolutely not. No, no. <laughs> it, you better think it got worse. Any sense of authority you had, I don't think you had very much, had gone. <laughs> so it was, it was a really inopportune reminder that there is a buffet instead of this. <laughs> So, Chris, back to the history. Where's my shame? Um, so, so, yeah, hecklers, you ima- they're often spontaneous, or so you imagine, but if you trod the boards in 19th century France, it's likely you would hear interruptions that were planned and undertaken by professionals. Wow. I've never heard of this. This has blown my mind. I'm so excited to tell you about it. Have you heard of the clackers? No. Have you ever heard of these? No. Obviously, you heard the- of on you know stooges in the audience. Well... This a very professional set, these were. The clackers, as they were known. A group of people hired to applaud a performance. So who exactly was the clacker? This is from one French newspaper, Contemporary Source. The clacker is an applauder employed by the management to stoke the success of a piece of theatre or an artist. Wow. They continued... The clackers constitute, along with the actors and the audience, the three indispensable elements of the theatre. Today, the age of ovation is over. The public, the real public, no longer applauds. They do not take the trouble to applaud. They are afraid of soiling their trousers or reddening their hands. They no longer cry out. They murmur bravo instead to avoid growing hoarse. The clackers are the result of these habits. The clackers will howl, stamp their feet, etc. The clackers were massive. At the largest venues, the entire operation might involve anywhere between 100 to 150 clackers. In smaller ones, 50 to 70 clackers. The least number of clackers was 30 at any one time. Would you have appreciated some of it? When we, get, when, we launch, when we hit the road with Oh What A Time live shows, can you get some 30 clackers in there? <laughs> I think, to be honest, it's imperative that we get 30 clackers. <laughs> all, hang, all, all cheering us in French accents. <laughs> I think I'd be um, a bit hurt if I turned up to do a tour show and the theatre said to me, don't worry, we've it's 75% clackers. <laughs> <laughs> we could see how this is going to oh, go. Oh, you think, I'm going to absolutely bloody rip this. <laughs> so the clacks were, were well organised. There was a boss, the chef de attack, who marshaled proceedings and could become very famous indeed. Below them, there were lieutenants who rang brigades that spread out within the theatres and sergeants below them. The man credited with inventing the clack as a method of ensuring appreciative audiences in the theatre was the 16th century poet Jean Durat, who gave freebies to would-be patrons in return for their claps and cheers when the curtain fell. Such was the success of Durat's invention that rivals soon became very jealous and they too employed claqueurs for their performances. And then it was realised... I don't know if you. I don't know if you saw this coming. I didn't. But this is what happened next is incredible. They then realised it inevitably that clackers didn't need to just clap. They could potentially boo as well. They could interrupt oh as well God. as applaud. Amazing. They could harm a production as well as encourage it. All for the right level of financial return. Can someone smell a protection racket coming on? No. Wow. 
So they threatened. They said, if you don't pay us, we're going to start booing. Exactly that. I'll move, I'll move on to that. By the 19th century, the claqueurs had developed into such a phenomenon within French theatre that they were professionally organised. What a job. I know. Oh, good to see you, mate. It's been ages. How are the kids getting on? Um, Abigail's studying midwifery, so we're very, very proud of her. And my son, um, Ryan's a clacker. Is he? Yeah, he prefers the booing, if he's totally honest. I went to see David O'Doherty at the Edinburgh Festival, and I sat next to the comedian Rose Matafeo. And I know Rose, and we sat down, and I said, I should just warn you, I am an incredible audience member. (laughs) And when he came on, I was like, yeah! (laughs) You're clacking! I'm clacking. And occasionally I would... David's a brilliant comedian, but occasionally I would really laugh and then I would look at Rose and I would say, see? I'm I'm an unpaid clacker. Well, Ellis, it sounds like you might be a prime candidate for the top job in clacking, which is the chef de orchestra de applause de monts or the leader of the orchestra of applause. I'm not sure my GCSE French is holding up there, but nonetheless. So one of the most famous chefs was Auguste Levasseur of the Paris Opera House, a larger-than-life figure, gifted with giant hands. What do you mean, giant hands? Gifted with giant hands? Yeah, no, we can't rush past that. (laughs) We need to pick up. How giant were these hands? Well, mate, he's making a job out of applauding. That is like Michael Phelps. Like, he was born to be a great swimmer. This geese has got massive hands. <laughs> we thought, well, yeah, I can't go into crochet. So it's got to be clack. Wow. So he had massive hands. Well, apparently, yeah, colourful clothes. And he it was said it was said that he could marshal his troops just as efficiently as the old Emperor Napoleon could his own on the battlefield. And he was paid by the bucket. He was paid twenty or thirty thousand francs a year, fees that were fully in line with the primo or prima on stage. And, back to a point we made earlier, it was from them that he began to extort his money. Oh, my God. Lise Noblet, a popular ballet dancer of the 1820s and 30s, was said to pay Auguste 50 francs every time she performed. Every performance for 15 years. Nearly every artist who performed had a similar contract with sums varying according to status with the audience and position within the company. So, when I go to watch my friends do stand-up, Actually, whenever whenever I go to watch anyone do stand up, if um, if you know whether I know them or not, I'm a really really good audience member. But that is through the goodness of my heart. I could have been earning money if I'd been back in France. Well, are you paying for your ticket? Good point. No, usually not. In a legal sense, you might be a clacker. Oh my god, I'm a clacker. What a moment! I never realised. <laughs> I've always thought you were a bit of a clacker, but it's. <laughs> What I find fascinating there is that, is, is that a ballerina is having to pay off someone. Yeah, Because yeah, the yeah. idea of someone booing a ballerina feels like such... I don't know how that would... Well, this is the thing. In, in 19th century France, it was plays, opera, ballet, stand-up comedy. It was all these art forms. Anything that required an audience, the clackers could come down and make or break you. We have international audiences, right? We've got listeners all over the world now. I'm assuming we've got listeners in France. I'd love them to be French people as opposed to sort of expats. I don't think the standard of stand-up comedy in France is particularly great. Uh, 
and I'm going to qualify this by we were, Izzy and I, before we had kids, we went to Paris for New Year's Eve about, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And we watched, it was the sort of equivalent of Live at the Apollo crossed with Hootenanny. So in a big theatre, but they were like dancing dogs and there was a, a choir and a band. And then um, a, a guy doing stand-up. So I'm assuming that he was of a sort of Michael McIntyre or Kevin Bridges sort of level, you know, like a really, really popular bloke. And Izzy's got A-level French, so she was able to uh, translate on the go, right? Now, this is New Year's Eve on the French equivalent of BBC One. And his his set, which I will never forget, was, oh, when you are uh, with your mistress, it is all, oh, when you are with your wife, it is like this, where is my wallet? <laughs> that got, that yeah. got a standing ovation, right? <laughs> Amazing. Although to be fair to that guy, I wouldn't say the fairest reflection of some stand someone's stand up is it being translated by someone who speaks a bit of French. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, actually it was of... brilliant. And there was so much nuance in it. He's the most talented comic on in Europe. It's just he happens to be speaking a language I don't speak. And also, in terms of nightmare bills, in terms of where you want to be, coming on after a dancing dog, I don't know if I fancy well, writing after either, Alice. I didn't know bloody loved French, the French stand-up scene so much. I would have defensive you were. Well, have you, are you invested in it or something? If I went to a gig and you came on after a dancing dog, Alice, and started doing stand-up, I'd be thinking, why am I not still watching the dancing dog? <laughs> That's no offence. I think you're very funny, but I'd much rather watch a dancing dog. So, to be fair to this guy, at least listen to it if you speak his language and recognise the fact he's been on after a boogieing two hour. Is he? We still say, where is my wallet? Like, quite often. <laughs> it's become one of the things we say in the house. Um, so, back to 19th century France. If the director of the opera took against you, watch out. This is what happened to a young dancer called Yolande Marie-Louise de Vernay, who was unfortunate to possess pushy parents who insisted during a series of performances at the Paris Opera House in 1831 that de Vernay did not need professional claps. Irritated with this presumption as he saw it, the director told Auguste not to allow his men to clap the dancer under any circumstances. So, even after Devonet's greatest routines, there was absolute silence in the Paris Opera House. That's wow. incredible. So, this just sorry, just to reiterate, that was the, the director of the theatre of the, of the performance yeah. took against the dancer. Is that right? Yeah, because she felt I don't need I don't need professional claps. Wow. Thanks, I'll get my own. And so they told the the, the big hand Auguste. Don't clap her under any circumstances. So they just stared down, icy cold, That's incredible. silence. That would suddenly make dancing, I think we've just talked about this before, actually, feel so undignified. Because it is quite <laughs> silly. Mean? Doing a dance is quite silly. It's, it's a skill. And if there's applause <laughs> at the end, it sort of makes it a talent. <laughs> but if you dance to silence, then you're just someone who's hopped around a bit. For oh, minutes. you feel like such a pillock, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, Devonay had to move to London eventually, but eventually she then went on to earn £600 a month, which is now £56,000 every month in today's terms. Ooh, nice. Not a bad career move. 
So, but like, back to our, our man, Big Handed August, who's the, the leader of the claqueurs. So he was famously studious. He would attend rehearsals with devotion. He would get copies of the text. He would mark them with his plan of attack. He'd figure out which line, where, where there should be laughter, where applause should fall, how wow. he graduated to an ovation, and so on. Um, and like a true mafioso, he kept his troops in line through patronage, doling out free tickets, which he extorted from the artists and management, of course, of varying rates of pay, all to maintain loyalty. So he was quite studious. It wasn't just turning up and getting just feeling the vibe on the day. He was doing his homework. This, I have to say, this doesn't reflect me in a very good light. I would just be turning up a clapping when everyone else was clapping <laughs> louder. I certainly wouldn't be turning up at rehearsals. By the last quarter of the 19th century, Clax begun a decline that eventually ended in their demise. Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables, led a campaign to eradicate, eradicate the Clax from the stalls. And a different standard of behaviour became emerged in theatres and concert halls, as particularly among mainly middle-class audiences. When vaudeville and music halls, which appealed to working-class patrons, they kind of became way more popular, and they were always uproarious and loud and never had to require a clacker. And again, this comes back to something we've said before. If you look at the Titanic, the really posh people, they're having boring, tense meals. Everyone's quite highly strung. Yeah. You go down below deck, it's a massive laugh. I've performed at the Hackney Empire. Have you ever performed there? I have, I yes. Have. Yeah, yeah. Because it's amazing, but that was a music hall. And people like Mary Lloyd performed there and Charlie Chaplin performed there. They were they were incredible gigs. And I that's one that's one thing. I don't know a huge amount about music hall, but it just sounds fascinating. A good laugh. Yeah. So that, that was kind of the end of the clacker, really. Um, but ironically, the clacker was revived after the Second World War. No. Do you know how? in what form? I'm not sure. What? Canned laughter in television oh, comedy. Of course, yes. How in the absence of an audience, a canned laughter track told viewers when to laugh, when to cry, when to ooh, when to ah, and what exactly to do when Dale Boy leans on the bar and he pulls <laughs> through it. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Um, I kind of just sort of wrap this up, I do sort of feel the idea of pushing an audience to say they're enjoying something does feel kind of uncomfortable. But if you are enjoying the show, do leave us a five-star review now and a nice <laughs> oh, comment. Under our- <laughs> very good. I'm going to talk to you today about a really unusual job called the prodder or the knocker up now um first question what are you guys like getting up in the morning are you are you any good terrible to the point where i'm beginning to think i have an illness oh really i i um i once read a magazine interview with uh john robbins in which he he said something that sticks in his mind whenever he has to get up early which is an interview he had read with johnny vaughan yes about johnny vaughan being told how to get up early and and his his advice was just get out of bed just get out of bed and now if i have to get up early for an early flight like 4am got to go to london luton for the airport i will think of john robbins interview in that magazine talking about the johnny vaughan interview in that johnny vaughan always said as long as you get in the shower once you've got in the shower you're fine you won't go back to bed after the shower so every time John has a shower, he thinks, well, I'm in the shower. So Johnny Vaughan says that this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. The, th- yeah. the things that stick in your mind. That, that, I think about that advice all the time. The amount of listeners we've had tell us, oh, yeah, well, now when I'm in the shower, I think, 
Well, John is thinking, I'm in the shower and Johnny Vaughan is telling me this is fine. So, but you mentioned there, Chris, the idea of being up for, uh, for an early flight. My problem there is if I do need to be up early for something and I've set an alarm for, let's say, 4am, could I be up for a flight? I will not have slept because I would have spent the whole yep. night thinking, oh no, I've got to be up at 4am. And more crucially than that, repeatedly leaning over and checking my phone to see if it's 4am yet. What if my phone doesn't go off? What if exactly. my phone breaks? What if my alarm is the only bit of my phone that doesn't work and I haven't realised? <laughs> do you know what I will do? Is if I have to be up and I'm worried about missing it, is I'll have three alarms on one phone. My wife Sophie, Sophie's phone, she'll have three alarms. The Amazon Alexa, that's going to have a couple of alarms. And the house would basically just fucking light up <laughs> at 4am. <laughs> And then, and then I miss the flight because I'm turning all these alarms off. <laughs> so the entire street has to get up at 4am with you as well. <laughs> so we're not early risers. I think we can kind of take that. But in the days before alarm clocks, it was particularly tricky, basically, to make sure that you got up in time for anything. So there have been public clocks since medieval times, usually in churches and marketplaces and stuff like that. And by the Tudor period, clocks were ubiquitous. Uh, but the accuracy was never certain. So basically, you turn up at work and you say to your boss, look at the clock there on the church. I am on time. And he'd say, yeah, but that's three hours behind or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> None of the clocks. They, they looked like clocks, but they did, didn't do what a clock was supposed to do. Yeah. Well, this, this comes back to one of the things I've always thought, which is that to what extent did time matter in the past? Yes. You know... If, every, if you, no one really knows what time it is, you just kind of go in, I don't know, just we'll vibe it in the morning, you know. <laughs> well, in the morning, come here. First thing, and I know your first thing's different to mine, but it, I'll, I'll, I can live with that. <laughs> when the sun's about exactly. there. <laughs> when that big hot thing in the sky appears, <laughs> then it's probably time to have some bacon and egg, and I'll meet you after that. <laughs> Oh, I can't do that. I'm doing intermittent fasting. Sorry. Okay, fine. <laughs> Whatever. Well, Chris, Forget it's, it. It's really interesting you say that, Chris, because <clears throat> there was a crucial time when time did start to matter, and that was the Industrial Revolution. This was the, the big change when time basically became commodified. So in, during the Industrial Revolution, um, everything became more stressful as this sort of new widespread mechanisation of everything meant that the routines of daily life were subject to computation. So... Let's say work might start at 5am, not finish till 9pm. You, For the first time, you were like, well, breaks are now officially 15 minutes. You have to be here at this, site, at this time. And for the first time, if you were late and you didn't make it for your allotted slot in the Industrial Revolution, basically, you wouldn't get paid. That's what happened. And punctuality became a necessity for the first oh, time. A, we've got the Industrial Age to th- thank for the fact we're all on the clock now. Yeah. We really do. That is literally what it is. And you can see that like in school, everything is broken up into, into periods of time. And really, this is the Industrial Revolution is what kind of that pushed this on us as a society. But um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I guess as a personality, I've not you've basically got to decide. Are you up for kind of regimented time slots for everything in your life or just you're vibing it the whole time? And maybe I'm, I think I'm maybe now be? in a place now I'm in a kind of I don't mind that I've been on the clock all the time. And managing my own time. What about you, Ellis? I spent years of my life trying to live a vibing it lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> and then as I've Post got older... Post-industrial age. <laughs> as I've got older, I've come to accept that, you know, things need to happen at a certain time. And obviously now I've got children and they need to be at school. 
<laughs> so that changes things. And I think I am fundamentally, instinctively, or naturally a very a real night owl, but that has changed a little bit as I've got older. Yes. Like before, I, I, I was effectively in agony until about midday, until I was about 35. <laughs> <laughs> Like if I if I saw sort of morning sunlight, it would be an almost painful reaction. I would just think, "This is mad. What is going on here?" Whereas now, if someone says, "Actually, can you be can you be in for half past 10? I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> no problem." I would say a time for you though, Ellis, when time goes out the window is when you are eating, because at that point everything slows down. Never had indigestion in my life, and I'm 43 in November. I, people talk about it. I'm like, sorry, you're going to have to explain that to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Because when you're eating, when you're, Ellis, are, yeah. are you loading up the next forkful as you're chewing, which is what most people do. And to be honest, it's probably a bad way of eating. It's what I do. So I'm eating, but I'm also getting the next forkful ready to, oh, God, no. you know, bust it into a depot, basically. <laughs> no, 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 no. What are you doing? Stick it on the fork. Have a little think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lovely little chat. Or more, even more frustrating for anyone who ever goes out for a meal with Ellis. You'll you'll be talking about something. You'll finish the point. The fork with a spag bowl will come towards your mouth. An edge of spaghetti will touch the lips, and then you'll start point number two, and it'll go back down into the bowl. Oh, <laughs> on my own. Pop it in the mouth. Have a Google. <laughs> so, children were also impacted by this. John Wesley was a Methodist teacher who founded a school called Kingswood near Bristol. And every day he woke at 4am and he insisted that all the boys at his school did the same. The Mark Wahlberg of his age. The school timetable was from 4am till 8pm. So he was oh re- one of the key proponents of good timekeeping. So if you went to this school, you would get up at 4am, you then put your PE kit on. You'd go down to do a bleep test or something like that or whatever. How tired you'd be all the time. And he even published a pamphlet on the duty and advantage of early rising in 1786, which basically suggested that having a lion was a sin. And by his words, by soaking so long between warm sheets, the flesh becomes soft and flabby. So his point of view was that any lying down, any rest like this was was, um, kind of a sin and a waste of life and this started to bleed out into society Um, and with this new pressure it became increasingly hard for people to manage first of all if you could afford a watch it still created problems because in factories basically managers during the industrial revolution wanted to be able to manipulate the time in which you were working so they could decide when your shifts ended and began by telling you it was a certain time when it wasn't really that time so if you were found with a watch you could be sacked at work. Wow. In 1857, That's so messed up. In 1857, one mill worker from Lancashire reported that there was a man who had a watch. It was taken from him and given into the master's custody because he had told his colleagues the time of the day. So basically, you could lose your job for telling people what time it was or coming in with a watch. So the, the factory owners were cheating them. They were keeping them there longer than... That's exactly That's it. That's crazy, isn't They it? wanted to control the boundaries of what your shift were basically. Man. And if people lived in ignorance, then you'd get another hour of people scuttling under looms, exactly. But then when you get home, there's a watch at home, it's like your dinner's cold, it's on the table. <laughs> not, a problem for, not a problem for LS, he eats cold food all the time. <laughs> I've got no problem with eating cold food. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. But 
The hardest thing of all, of course, which brings me to this crazy job, was getting up in the uh, in the morning. That was the trickiest thing of all, which is where this job, the prodder or the knocker-upper, came into place. So the knocker-upper was a guy or a gal who would carry a long stick, some 14 foot long, and would walk around town tapping on the windows of people who'd paid them to uh, wake them up in the morning, basically. So you'd pay this person, and in the morning they would come around and they would knock on your window with a 14-foot stick. I have to ask, how are they getting up? (laughs) That's a very good point. Also, once they've knocked on your window, are you allowed to yell out the word snooze and then they return again (laughs) ten minutes later? (laughs) Keep yelling snooze until it's half an hour and you're late for work again. Also, how do you call off the knocker? Do you, you... do they keep knocking to you open the window and go, yeah, I'm up. You know, you well, I imagine they had so many people to go, they probably would knock a couple of times. And then that was, it was kind of on you really to get up at that point. Yeah, yeah. It, I've done my, but then, it wasn't, you know, how are you managing customer complaints? You didn't knock. Yes, I did. I'm you slept calling through. in sick. <laughs> <laughs> it's my holiday. Yeah. <laughs> Please. We were on, I don't sleep enough, right? And we were on holiday. Uh, we were all sharing a, a hotel room. So me and Izzy and the two kids. And I had to sleep in bed with my son to try and to try and settle him because obviously we were in a different place. So I was lying next to him in the dark. Izzy was in the bathroom reading a book, um, and this would have been about half past nine. Eventually, I just fell asleep. Right, so then I woke up, you know, twelve hours later. <laughs> I've not had that much sleep probably for twenty years. I felt so alert; it was like I'd been electrocuted the next day. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. just think I suppose also in those days th- there was far less entertainment and also far less light so yeah. in the pre-electric light age that's interesting you, you're like well what are you going to do you're going to go to bed aren't you so it continued to grow the 1880s and 1890s saw further growth and expansion in the knocker up trade so that Almost 700 people claimed it as their job by the t- turn of the 20th century some people also did a bit of knocker upping uh, on the side. They're the so, ones I really don't trust. Yeah. <laughs> the, the tired ones who are doing it as a sort of hobble, as Welsh people say, for a bit of your bit of pocket money. Come on, mate. But it was in the Netherlands that it at last died out, which is just after the Second World War. So it lasted that long out there. One thing I think that we can agree as parents, in terms of getting up as parents, I have not set an alarm since my children have been born. No, because it is pointless in the morning. They're going. They're going to be up ahead of when I need to be up. Occasionally, I do, and then when it goes off, it's such a piss take. Yeah. Then what I will do is I'll set an alarm for eight a.m., but I'll be up at half five, and then oh, I'll yeah. be in my third cup of tea, and the alarm will go off. And I think <laughs> that alternative universe version of me—that's a reminder. Yeah. I liked him. <laughs> I miss that guy. Oh, <laughs> that guy's all right. Yeah. So that is the job of the uh, knocker-upper. I remember seeing in a film once, I don't know if this is true or not, that people used to tie string around their toe and dangle it out the window and then someone would go past and yank on the string. But I have a feeling now that maybe that was just something that happened in a cartoon. <laughs> That's a dream. That's the dream you've had. Yeah. I, ca- I can't imagine getting a restful night's sleep with my foot, with my toe dangling out the window. Also, guys, let's be honest, there's some weirdo who hasn't tied it to their toe. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you learned a lot. I certainly did about jobs. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'm running out of ways to say it. Just feel free to jump on your podcast app of choice and leave us a lovely old review. Five stars if you can. Thank you so much. It does help. And don't forget you can email into the show as well at hello at ohwhatatime.com. We'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.